Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. While I'm interested in the frontiers defining the future of fashion, it's necessary to acknowledge a certain responsibility to and respect for the landscape of our past. Season 9 aims to understand the context our clothing has to our climate, our culture and our country. And in a world where fashion moves fast, examine how we can move forward and find a sense of self back in nature. This series will continue to share stories of creative people with a strong sense of style, but with a grounded group of talented fashion professionals who share in their ability to work with nature as well as nurture and nourish it. Today, I'm chatting to Rachel Rutt, model, artist and designer of cult knitwear and crochet label Rutt Australia. While she may be a familiar face gracing the pages of all the style glossies, for Rachel, fashion hasn't always come naturally. Like her craft, her story is an intertwined web of diverse experiences, leading her to a site of substance and style, but always circling back to a place that respects and reveres the beauty of nature. Whether she's foraging in a rural commune, weaving on a wool farm or basking in the beauty of the beach, Rachel has mastered the art of knitting the practical with the pleasing and it's her style to do it with colour and free-flowing charm. I hope you can sit back, relax and enjoy listening to Rachel's story. Um. So, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, we're so lucky to have a beautiful spring day in Tamarama, yeah. uh, so a place that's kind of sacred to both of us. And it, I think in reading everything about you, you, that sense of connection between what we wear, our landscape um, and, and who we are is um, really important to you. So that being the tone of the interview, let's connect with who you are and start with your origin story. Um, my understanding is that you uh, grew up in, if you were born in Hong Kong, but you grew up in a rural commune in Japan, is that right? Yes. Um, Given that that's a, like quite an exotic upbringing for most Aussies that you know kind of grew up in suburbia, can you just start off by giving like painting a picture of what that actually looked like? So um, growing up was in um, rural Japan. I grew up in a commune, and there were a lot of other big families, much like mine. And um, I guess to put it more basically. Um, I think anyone who grows up in a rural area has a really deep appreciation for nature because it's sort of what's around. You spend a lot of time by yourself or inventing things, going out into nature, into the bush. You know, it's your entertainment, it's the source of your inspiration, it's how you learn everything. You know, you fall down, you get up, you touch a poison plant, you learn how to deal with it, those kind of things. And I was quite lucky to have a lot of women in my life, my mom, um, other women that took care of me in that scenario who really knew how to make things and so I think that's where my love of making and creating came from. Uh, one, one mentor in particular, um, she would take us out into the bush or the beach and she would just show us how to find things, you know, and like how to see things with this whole new um, kind of perspective. Oh, you see that shell. This time of year they arrive on the beach and we can collect them and we can make frames for our photographs or, you know, just, just showed us how to collect and how to see and forage in a, in a way that 
I feel very lucky now as an adult to have experienced. Mm. Even my, you know, my stepson, only on the weekend, I was knitting something and he asked me, he's like, how do you do that? And then he followed it up with, who taught you how to do all this stuff? And to say that it's one person or not is, is it's too difficult because there's so many experiences in any creator's life, right, that accumulate into why or how they do something. But I realized how very, very fortunate I was to have those people in a very pivotal part of my childhood really just show me the possibilities. And so were you, you were predominantly raised by women, is that like? Oh, no, no, um, not at all. It was a very, you know, it, it was just a lot of different people from around the world and a lot of, a lot of, yeah, different people and a lot of children, a lot of adults, just every type of person. So we were, having never been to a commune, like, you know, their, their connotations are this kind of hippie, free loving, uh, very natural um, liberty of an environment. Is that like, would you have, would you describe it that way? Um, no, it was pretty structured. I think like if you're operating with, you have people living together, it has to have some form of structure, otherwise it doesn't succeed in terms of just having a lifestyle, you know. Um, I have met other people from different um, groups that did similar things that weren't the same as the one that I was born into and you know you you can I mean history tells itself right you can see the successes or the failures and to be honest it seems like most of them don't really succeed because mm -hmm. it's it's very difficult for people to like you know find that common ground over a very long period of time um, but you know kudos to people who can commit to that yeah as someone who was born into it I didn't really choose that so um, coming out of it as a young adult or a teenager and you know you, you kind of realize okay the world isn't like that but so much of those experiences have really shaped me and really um, allowed me to kind of have, a, have the unique perspective that I feel I have. And yeah, I, I feel very thankful for that. So, and I, I want to tease that out, um, but uh, I, I want to just understand, like, because you did come to Australia as a teenager, my understanding would be that you wouldn't have had a huge exposure to popular culture. Yeah. Um, so was, was all your entertainment literally like foraging and, and, and playing in the land? Is that your television, your, your Nintendo? Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, I think there's a bit of exposure there, but definitely not on the same level as like average person in the Western world, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it wasn't until I came to Australia that a lot of these experiences that I think people have taken for granted, like my partner, he's Australian and he, you know, he grew up, he had that traditional suburban upbringing, as yeah. you mentioned, and, you know, him and his mom listened to the radio and, um, like every song has this like memory for him, you know, whereas for me, they're all really new memories yeah. and like uh, it doesn't make them any less special, but it's like I'll, I'll have heard a song that's like really old for the first time and everybody else knows it and yeah. I'm just stunned by it. But you don't have that sense of nostalgia attached to it. No, I mean, it, uh, there's a little bit of that, but you know, because, you know, I have seen movies and things like that. But yeah, it's absolutely true. It's something that I definitely went through this kind of whole discovery of realizing what other people <laughs> thought was really normal and it was all brand new to me. But, yeah. you know, it's a blessing as well. I want to understand in a commune, it, was it, what was the relationship to clothing? Oh, okay. So it, we didn't really have a lot of money to spend on clothes, so everything we had was secondhand pretty much. Yeah. Um, and so there's just that baseline of um, using what you need, um, just sharing and fixing. So, I mean, that's pretty normal. My mum has taught me, like, since I was young, like, okay, a pair of pants is too long for you, but they won't be too long for you eventually, so here's how to hem them up, and this is just normal. You know, like, it wasn't, oh, here's this really big important skill it was just like you need to learn this so get yeah. it done you know and I think I think in a way that's like quite an old-fashioned mentality but 
the end of the day for me, and I always come back to it in my work with making, it's always, it's, it's the fabric of the universe. It's, it's the fabric, it's the bridge between cultures, any of this sort of creation, especially with fiber. We, all these cultures around the world have developed this some way or another, and it's essentially the same, but they may never have met over the thousands of years of their development, right? Um, and when it comes down to like the modern kind of relationship with fixing our clothes and that kind of practicality and pragmatism, it's essentially, it's always been that way up until only like a few decades ago. Mm. So in some ways I'm very lucky to have had that imparted on me, but also it's interesting that this sort of um, memory lag and our human kind of connection to it has only been actually fairly recent. Mm. So to answer the question of how my relationship was with clothing, I, it was very, very practical, it was very much about you know, there wasn't, it wasn't so much about self-expression, although I do remember enjoying wearing a dress sometimes or things like that, like yeah. any, any kid, but um, yeah, I was definitely more peppered with, oh, if that doesn't fit, we can change it or we can alter it or, or how, can we, how can we fix it to, to be undone later? And I love that idea, that repurposement that isn't final, that kind of um, the joy in being, you know, I do it for my stepson with his school pants, you know, you get him, a, he's growing so fast and you get these long pair of pants and they're dragging, so you just take them up, but it's actually very easy to do it in an invisible way where no one can tell, and then when it's, when he's, he's tall enough, suddenly you can just cut it open and it's brand new again, and it's, yeah. it's amazing, but it's so simple and so easy, it's magical. Yeah, so, it, and it's an evolution in itself, the way that you're describing the process of mending and repairing and continuing. Yes. Um, so I imagine then coming to Australia would have been quite a culture shock for you as a teenager. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was really intense. Um, <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, I think, um, so I arrived in Sydney and I didn't know, I mean, I didn't really know anything about Australia. I just knew there were deadly animals and, you know, all the typical yeah. stuff. Um, and I probably thought that Sydney was where Darwin is, you know, I really didn't know anything, like nothing about the geography, you know, nothing about the culture here. Um, and uh, we landed in the western suburbs and it was really hard for my mum and I. We, um, we ended up in a refuge within the first year of living here and right. thankfully, I mean, thankfully that exists here, you know. We had support. Um, it, was, it was going to be very difficult for us to stay. But without the support of the amazing women at this refuge, um, we wouldn't have been able to start our life here. We might have had to leave or it just would have been really, really difficult. And um, honestly, it it was, you know, in that there's a culture shock, and then there's just the shock of having to deal with that kind of life. And my mum, my mum was starting a career for the first time, having been, you know, a homemaker, essentially raised five children and took care of other people's children, you know, her whole life. And suddenly she was like, "All right, I've got to make something, you know, make a career." And the people, the people who helped us, they were they were amazing, you know. They um, they provided us with accommodations and in, for for a few years to help us, you know, get on our feet. And we had a. Um, my mum worked a lot of jobs. I was a cleaner for most of my high school years and we worked together to like, um, you know, just save and build a life together. Yeah. And then that was sort of how... Um, and it was just the two of you at this Just time? the two of us here, because yeah. I was her youngest and, you know, yeah. we moved here together. My brothers had grown up and gone their own way. Um, and she and I, yeah, so while I was here and while I was sort of just, the, I think it was in the first year I was here, it was really, it was really intense, and you know, you're looking around, going, "What? What are we doing here? Like, how do we, how do we move forward?" And she'd made this friend who was from Hong Kong, actually, as well, and um, who was a knitter. And she would go, "Why don't you, why don't you hang out with her? And she'll, she, she'll teach you how to knit." And as soon as she showed me uh, what it was, I just, I just loved it. I'd never come across it before. I'd never seen it. I mean, I'd seen a sweater, but like, I'd, I'd never seen anyone knitting before. I guess in, in Japan, I just had never come across that technique. I'd been around sewing and like. 
you know, a lot of that, but never, never needlework, you know, in that way. So it just, it got me right away and I loved it. And I think, um, you know, that was just that and it happened. Was it quite cathartic for you? I mean, because obviously you, it sounds like you had to grow up quite fast and, you know, you're in a situation um, where, you know, your mum is working, you're working really hard. And as a teenager, you probably will observe that you would have been working harder than the average teenager. Um, it's interesting. I, I think, um, and maybe it's harder to see, uh, like now, but I think, you know, in the western suburbs at least of Sydney, there's a lot of immigrants and, and when I, you know, I mean, there was a culture shock on a lot of levels going to school for the first time, things like that, but then I was meeting these people who are from all over the world, you know, uh, South America, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Lebanon, coming, coming here in the same amount of time as me, you know, like arriving at the same time, some of them not speaking English, I was fortunate I already spoke the language here, but you know, maybe never been to school. Like I knew a girl from Pakistan and she was, she was in high school, but she was 21 already. And she, she didn't really know how to read or write, didn't know how to do basic math. And she was put, you know, in a higher year because of her age bracket. And she, you know, like that's hard, you know. Yeah. And then another friend of mine, she, she, we became very good friends. And she told me, yeah, for the first year of knowing you, I had no idea what you're saying, you know. <laughs> and she, she, she was uh, fluent, you know, she was fluent in Spanish and, and within a year spoke English fluently and then within two years graduated at the top, like in 99.9 .9 category of, of the state mm. in, a, in a foreign language. You know, like there's just, there's, there's great examples everywhere that, you know, far exceed mine. So yeah. it, it's, it's interesting, like, you know, then there is, there is the, what we assume is the average, but then there are so many people who come here to make another life and they do so brilliantly. And, you know, with all the different odds, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. So I do, I do feel like in that way, Yes, there were some people who were more privileged or had it a little bit easier, but then there were a lot of people who were not exactly like me, but pretty similar. And how did, how did those relationships inform you, do you think? Um, I think, like, it became becoming aware that even though it's not the same and there's, that, you know, like, you want, to, yes, you want to meet people who are the same as you, it, it is comforting, but just to know that, okay, to be different is normal. To be, to be dealing with things that you didn't expect is normal. And that's, that's just part of life, and it is difficult, but but you're not alone, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, at the end of the day, that spark, that, you know, that human connection really, really persists and it overflows anything else. Like if you want it to, it's there, right? Yeah. So did you guys get an opportunity, like, because you, you, regardless of um, whether there were people in as, as challenging situations as you or not, you, it sounds like you would have all had to grow up quite fast and there would, there would have been a strength and resilience that brought you guys together. But you were still teenagers and did you get a chance to just be frivolous and engage in like silly popular culture stuff? I uh, think, you know, I think, I think, you know, the average you go to the movies, you, I mean, living out west, I remember we'd take, we'd take the bus to get to Bondi, you know, it'd be two hours or something, <laughs> you'd slog it over <laughs> and then you'd come and you'd spend half the day and you'd just think it was the best. And you'd do it like once every summer because it was ex exhausting. Yeah. But, you know, yes, of course, of course, you know, you, you, your girls are, you know, just, I was very lucky to actually make great friends when I arrived that, yeah. you know, in that way that I had that relatability to, but also who accepted me for being different from whoever they, you know, maybe different, maybe not. Yeah. So what, what bits seeped in with you guys or you yourself? Like what, what are the bits that you fell in love with from popular culture and even fashion? Did you start to to glean a relationship with fashion at that point? No, the, <laughs> my relationship with fashion is it only happened with modeling. Right. Like it started, it started with modeling. I, 
I just, you know, I have a, I have a lot of brothers. I grew up, my mum, my, my dad has 10 children. I have eight brothers through my dad. Right. Um, it's a very <laughs> masculine household and, um, you know, I'm right in the middle of that and I was a real tomboy myself anyway. So clothing was not really something I was ever really interested in other than the practicality aspect of it. Um, you know, but I, growing up in Japan and, you know, whenever you'd go to the city, there was there's so much, especially in the noughties, you know, it was like very expressive time yeah. culturally. There was all the, and I still get really inspired by this now, the whole Gyaru movement, which was just like wild. There, were, there was the whole like, there was, it's interesting. It was almost a blackface movement with um, this, was a counterculture that people would eschew on the, on, it wasn't actually like totally black, but it was this bronzer. Right. And it, it, it had all these levels and these girls, they were so eschewed, like people would walk away from them on the train or like get angry at them, which is really intense in Japanese culture. It's a very polite culture and very respectful in that way. But these girls like, it was only feminine as well. Mm. And they would, they would get shunned. Um, I think you'd be fascinated by it, you should look it up. Yeah. Um, uh, and they were, that was like a really big movement at the time when I was a tween and a teenager before I came here. And it really impacted me. Like I didn't really understand what it was until I became an adult and I could actually look into it a bit more and realize. But, it was this almost like what, in some ways, it kind of related to a bit of what happened in the mid, like, 2010s of like sea punk a little bit, but just much more, um, really like, on a cultural level, ambitiously rebellious, like against that just kind of suburban norm in Japan. And I, I continue to go back to that in reference. Yeah. Coming here, you know, I mean, I think when I was here, it was very emo. Like that was that sort of time <laughs> and I you know I don't know that I related to it that much but you know you're around it and I guess that's it's anyone looking back on their teen years you're kind of like oh you know like but you had a shaved head at the time right yes yeah, so, well that was, that was that a function of no I uh, it was shortly after like, arriving in Australia I um it was just something I always wanted to do and it was a couple months after being here and I guess there had been so much change and I just thought well if, I'm not going to do it uh, this is a, if I'm going to do it this is the time to do it and I might never do it if I don't do it now so I I gave it a go and it wasn't to have a shaved head forever, it was more just to experience that feeling. But what was it like? It was very confronting. Because yeah. <laughs> then I started school shortly after that. Right. <laughs> it's interesting. But, you know, you live and you learn, and I'm really glad I did that. Yeah. You know, you, you, it's, I think it's important, like, you feel very alive. It's not important to shave your head, but it's important to listen to yourself in those moments and just to give it a go as opposed to be just um, worried all the time about what other, someone else is going to think about you. Um, and but, was your you know, mum just go for it? Was she supportive or? <laughs> oh, I um, I did it in the middle of the night. I cut it all off, and then in the morning I surprised her with this like chopped up hair, and she was like, I didn't know what she was gonna say, and she just went, oh, she's like, it's so uneven. And she, got the, <laughs> she got the you know the razor out and fixed it up for yeah. me, and I I always think back on that reaction. I really appreciate that she just. You know, she didn't. She didn't overreact, and she just went, "All right, well, I'm, <laughs> you look a bit bald out the back. Let's let's cut this." So, you know, appreciate yeah. that a lot. So, um, as you said, you, your exposure to fashion came with modelling. How you started modelling at, at quite a young age, right? Um, I always think this. I think uh, it's young. It's young for anyone starting a career. It's not necessarily young for a model. Yeah. <laughs> um, because models start so young, yes. and I feel that you know. Um, I think I probably went into around 18, so I was just finishing school and, um, you know, I think it kind of introduced me to the city here. I never really came into the city very much and started coming in for castings or meeting my agency or, you know, whatnot and sort of started exposing me to like the greater aspect of 
of Sydney as a place, mm. which I wasn't really experiencing just being in the suburbs. So it was, it was really eye-opening and started meeting a lot of people through that. But I do think that it's, 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 it's hard sometimes to really, it's like a bit of a sink or swim thing, mm. you know? Um, but it's, it's amazing and I think through that I really met people that were freaks like me in that way. You know, you didn't feel so like odd, you know, a lot of people felt like they were outcasts and this was the way they could express themselves. And I think I, I resonated with that a little bit and just going, oh, like whatever's normal doesn't have to apply in this universe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that, I appreciated that a lot. And do you think you drew, drew from the strength that you would have already learnt kind of arriving here? And it, it, because you do have to be tenacious in these industries um, and you've had a very successful career. Uh, do you think that that's the differentiator for you? I don't know. I mean, I meet so many girls. They're so smart and they're, you know, they're doing three other things as well as their career and they're traveling and they're becoming a doctor and they're, yes. you know, they're, there's, there's a lot of people who are just so capable and they can really see that job for what it's worth financially or for the opportunity to travel and get out there and see the world and make new friends, make connections, whatever it is. Um, but I do feel like with modeling, I, I do feel like, especially being older now in that in that industry, I always feel like, God, I wish I could I could write a letter to every girl I meet who just started because there are so many things I wish someone else had told me, you know, or like, like and, and you know, like what? Or, well, things that even people did tell me, but I was too young even to absorb because right. you, you know you don't think you're going to get older or you don't think that you don't you just don't understand yet, which is just life, right? Yeah. And it's cool, just you know, just to be prepared or just to. To ex find your interests while you're doing this, you know. I think a lot of people just get really sucked into it, and it's so fun. But then, you know, you might you might not spend enough time actually exploring the things that you really enjoy outside of an industry. You just, it's all about work. Yeah. And um, I think mainly that, and then also just mental health things around it. You know, I think that there's a lot of there should be more importance placed on that. Right. Um, so you know, because it's a very competitive atmosphere. Yeah, and that, I guess that's my point. It is competitive, um, and to sustain that, yes. you know, no matter how capable you are, intellectually or academically, uh, you need to have an emotional resilience and a tenacity to keep going, right? Yes, I think. Um, I think. I mean, for me, I set some boundaries for myself very early on. Um, for what I needed to do to make sure I didn't get up, uh, didn't start having emotional issues around certain things. So I set those boundaries early. Um, but you know, I've had a long career and I do think that even saying that, yes, I did that then, but it evolves and you have to constantly adapt those boundaries for yourself because you're changing and you're growing up. Yeah. So um, I think the hardest part overall is just that you're discovering yourself while you're discovering a job. And sometimes you forget that they're two different things. Yeah. And it's important to remember that they're not this and that would probably be the biggest piece of advice I'd say, but, yeah. Um, so how does this girl that only has a very practical relationship to fashion, um, you know, that <laughs> can imagine you just wearing like old jeans and, um, and you know, boyish t-shirts, uh, how do you go from that to a world where you're exposed to the most beautiful fabrics, the most artful designs, what, did that do for your sense of creativity like and how did you then like once you started to get all this exposure to the fashion industry how did you connect to it i think the pivoting point the pivotal point for me with actually appreciating any of it in terms of like the fabrication or the quality was my own experience through making so once i started making full garments or you know with my knitting practice 
um, that was when I started to realize, hey, wait a minute, like that's, I'm putting a week's worth of hours of off time or whatever, you know, 70 hours into this sweater or more, whatever. And how, who made this? <laughs> and how did that get made into this thing? How long did that take? And why is it only a hundred bucks? Or why is it a thousand dollars? And like, you know, that, that was where it started changing for me in terms of thinking about it because I was relating my own experience and the, you know, the sweat and tears over, you know, what you are creating and then realizing like, oh, wow, like somebody else did this. And um, I think when you start to look at the world like that, it completely changes. It's like, I'm sure it's how a mechanic sees every car, you know, it's like, mm. it's, it's in that way. And, and it, circling back to the idea of mending, I think that that's what is so important about it because it defines our, redefines our relationship with clothing. When you spend that time fixing something, you, you suddenly start observing it. You know, um, why, where does it need to be fixed? What is this detail I'm looking at? When you start seeing your clothes in this, in this way, suddenly the appreciation just by nature opens up and so your value extends like not just because you're preserving something but you're kind of realizing hi i i don't know how that got woven or i don't even know how someone did that detail or wow that looks really hard or oh that looks really easy etc and just by having that tiny little moment we transform the everyday into the infinite magic which is like our collective connection to each other when we give or we make what did you choose when you when you as a young girl being exposed to this world that you, as I said, you had no real relationship to before, where did you go to? Well, I started, um, so I started making wearables through my knitwear and people, because a lot of the time I was bringing the knitwear onto sets to kill the time, because there's so much waiting time with shows, shoots, all of that, you know, you're just sitting around heaps of the time. Yeah. And it's exhausting. And if you don't have anything to do, it's even more exhausting. So I started bringing it as this like side thing. And you know, you're making friends and you know, you're working with all these people and they start going, oh, well, what have you made? And talking about it with you. And then somebody goes, oh, well, I'd like to borrow that and style with it. Or what, what, what can we create around that? And it started making me realize like, oh, what I'm doing is actually kind of parallel to this other world that I'm in. It's not, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have made that connection otherwise. Yeah. Um, but it was just sort of started intermingling there. And, um, you know, I didn't, but because of that kind of, it started developing this awareness of the value and like when so, how something gets priced or you know like the difference between luxury and fast fashion, etc. Um, and it was a, around that time I started going, well, I want to keep making things, but I don't want to have a brand. I I I can see what goes into it, and it's a lot of labor and a lot of people's labor that are probably getting underpaid or, you know, it's it's quite it's quite intense to think about, it's really big. And I know a lot more people are thinking about it now and it's uncomfortable because mm -hmm. it's been so ingrained as like normal for us to you know, buy new clothes every winter for you know, the season or whatever it is. And it was very confronting. And it, so I thought, well, this is a way I can express myself, but I don't need to turn it into anything more. This can just be a visual arts practice. Right. So I, I worked really on that level for a long time. I did a wearables collection um, and we documented it with videos and photographs. And that was really like, it was a really nice um, way to explore things for me, you know, and I had all the creative people in my life to make that sort of stuff happen, which I feel very, very lucky about, you know. Yeah. Um, and I realized years later that when I'd been doing my visual arts in high school, I'd essentially done the exact same thing, but it had been on a high school level and I revisited that and I realized, I was like, oh, you forget these things, but looking back in old photos, I found this whole documentation of this bodysuit that I'd made as like a final work. and. It was interesting going, oh wow, that like the same idea keeps coming up again and you don't think about it like that, but here it is. 
And when you realize, when I realized that, I think it gave me a lot of hope and it made me feel like, you know, I was doing something right for myself at least, you know, I was following my heart and it was paying off because I felt good about it. Um, uh, but, you know, over the years, I ended up studying at the Hand Weavers and Spinners Guild for weaving because I, I wanted to progress in my understanding of how textiles were made. And we're lucky enough to have a guild in New South Wales. Um, it is a lot of older generation women, um, some men, but, you know, it's really skipped a generation. All these things used to get taught at TAFE or, you know, in the 90s. And then for some reason, they just thought it wasn't relevant anymore. And so they've, they've removed it. And um, it's a real shame because these are people who keep, you know, we have a big agriculture industry here around fiber, especially around wool, and even cotton I discovered recently. And, um, you know, even, you know, if we're going back to colonial times, like there were a lot of weaving uh, mills here, weaving and spinning mills. So it's kind of ingrained in the more recent culture of Australia and these skills are universal. And so it's a shame that, that these women who have these really amazing skills are not really given the platform in which to serve it back and which is their true passion, you know. Yeah. Um, and I feel really lucky to have spent two years learning under, under some of them and, and just understanding what actually goes into making, um, making a, even just a strand of yarn. So, like for example, and I always come back to the story and it's really good, <laughs> this woman Linda who I, um, I learned weaving with and she was also like a fellow student at times, she and her husband run this um, business called Petlands where it's all weaving and spinning supplies um, and they also have a farm, a wool farm. So. Linda was wearing this amazing jumper one night at class, and um, you know I said, "Oh, did you make that?" And of course she did. And um, she goes, "Yeah." And all this wool um, I spun and carded myself, and it was all from my one sheep named Jed. And I was like, "Oh wow!" So it's, you've got all these different um, color tones of brown. And she goes, "Yeah." So it's just different parts of his coat, and so we separated it all first, and then we combed and carded it, and then we you know spun it and all this sort of stuff. Mm. And she goes, "But you see how it's pilling a little bit?" And I was like, "Yeah." Um, I could see that and she goes, yeah, it's a real shame. I didn't realize until this sweater started pilling that Jed was really sick that year. And right. that's why his wool this pilled. Not. Yeah, right. And that whole, it just was this, in that tiny, tiny three minute conversation, complimenting her jumper, this whole universe was revealed. You know, your relationship with your, with your animal, the, the, the whole relationship with your clothes, like yeah. you made that yeah. for him, through, through him, but you know, and you made it with your own hands, with your own skill, you designed it, like everything from the ground up, yeah. like, and when it's done, it'll probably get buried in your backyard, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's amazing. Because you've said before that um, weaving and knitting for you is a narrative between the land, um, the maker, the process, and the wearer. Is this what you? Is yes. This story encapsulate this is, that yes. narrative. Yes. yes, very much so. And I know that like not everybody has that. You know, not even every maker has that exact relationship with ab absolutely having the land to grow that. You know, grow the fiber on whether it's plant or animal. And, and but you know, this is a perfect example of that. And. You know, I think also we forget, again, being in Western countries where we, most of those industries get outsourced now to third world countries where they have more labor on hand and things like that. We forget that actually a huge part of the world still operates like this. Yep. And um, I think reanalyzing that and reengaging with that idea that what we put in, it's the same as our food, you know, it's like what we put into ourselves, what we put into our animals, what we put in back into the soil, how we take care of this, it all comes back on us, it comes back onto our skin, it comes back into the way that we breathe in the air, you know, mm. everything is connected. Yeah. Um, you've also said that your relationship to knitting and your connectivity to Australia go hand in hand. 
Yes. Yeah. Well, mainly because I learned how to knit here, but also because it was through love, like my love of wool. You know, our our wool here is the premium wool in the world. You know, like I I know that there are many countries in the world that have amazing wool, but our merino wool is you know the best the best you can get really. And I mean, even with my brand, a lot of people told me, oh, no, you can't, you can't get things made here. Like, you can't. Like, knitting, you know, it's just not possible. Nothing gets made here anymore. And I, and I, you know, I had to really think about that a lot. But I started working with this mill here. And they, um, they're in northern New South Wales, or mid, central, central New South Wales. And they are one of the oldest mills in Australia and the only one left doing things in the way that they are. Yeah. It's like a, over 100 years old, all the equipment there. And it still functions because it's just, you know, it's made to last and it's just, it's still useful. And it's run by 10 people in a small town and they, all their wool, it, most, of, most things now, even if they get, maybe they get spun here or maybe they don't or they get grown here, they get processed offshore before they come back. And I, it's... It's interesting because when you start to understand how things get turned into fiber, for example, with wool, if you if you shortcut the process uh, with you know carding and and spinning, a lot of these mills say in China or things like that. I'm not you know of course there's the premium end of things, but an average one they'll take all the all the fluff that falls off, all the little short bits and ends, and they'll put it back in into the spinning. And while while you get more for you know bang for your buck, it creates shorter shorter ends because the wool gets pulled out long and then it gets twisted. And those, those fibers need to stay connected, they need to stay long in order for, for them to just have that softness and that strength, tenacity. Yeah. When you add shorter ones into there, um, it's like a weak link in a chain. Um, it also causes peeling, all sorts of stuff. It will make it more coarse, things like that. And when you're buying it, maybe it looks glossy and, and you start knitting with it and it's all well and good, but exactly like Linda and Jed, in not too much time you will see that difference in the quality um, in the way that it wears and it's so apparent in everything once you start seeing it and it's not to it's not to demean those processes it's good to be using the waste as well it's not a bad thing but it's very interesting when you kind of start realizing that these are all decisions these are choices and the way that we can work and you know they, they define how long something lasts mm. um, and you know for example this mill that I work with they're so proud to be offering what they're doing and they, you know, you can call them up at any time of the working week and they will happily tell you the story of how their yarn, it gets grown in Tasmania on this farm and then it comes up to, to Victoria, gets processed there, then it goes to the mill and it gets spun and then it gets dyed. And they're just so, they're just so proud of that and you feel it when, you, when the product arrives in your hands or, you know, now I'm getting to work with local knitters here and they are just, you know, and it's this whole other system that's starting to come into place and, and it's this conversation and everybody, you know, when I sent, the, sent that wool to my knitters and we started sampling things, you know, a year or so ago, they knew the mill. They were like, oh yeah, yeah, we love this place already. And they all have, they all connected to each other. Everyone's got some story and some way of doing things. And, you know, and then I realize now, I think, oh, the people who told me I couldn't make that here, it was not possible. Like, they just, I get it. I get that they're thinking about it in this other way, but there's always... It just made me realize that there's always is a way if you really want it to happen. Yeah. And it's maybe not as hard as you think. And it, obviously, you know, you're going to central New South Wales to visit this wool mill. Like there's this beautiful kind of storytelling that goes with it, but this kind of connection back to the landscape, like, like as we're talking about. Um, is that important to you? You obviously, like you live by the beach, you, you've lived in the mountains. Is your, your, your upbringing was very connected to nature. It, it's something that 
stayed with you and is important to how, how you be? I think so. In what way do you mean? Um, like, well, I guess, why do you live here, you know? Why, why choose Tamarama as opposed to Paddington or, you know, like... Um, well, um, I lived on the Northern Beaches for four years before moving back to the city. I just really love the beach. I think, for me, if I'm going to live in Sydney, and I've lived, I have lived everywhere in Sydney. I've really lived north, south, east, west. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, which I'm very proud of because I do think it's really important to know the place that you choose to be. Um, and I really appreciate the city. You know, I've really grown up here, and I know it, and I and I love that I know it. Um, and I think for me, the beach is just like it. It's the easiest form of relaxation. You know. It, summertime you know you take your kid down here you don't need to go anywhere you just go straight to the water everybody's happy you know it's just nature nature does that you know you don't have to talk about it it's done yeah <laughs> you know and I think that that simplicity is is really what keeps me there you know I mean it's it's what people come to this country for to see right so it's you know it's it's not really it to not live near the beach I think would be very difficult for you now yes yeah um going back to your modeling I, I think it's important because I feel like you're such a well-known face in Australia you've worked with so many Australian brands and all our coveted fashion magazines um, what does that mean to you in terms of representing an Australian aesthetic I think um, when I started modeling um, being non-Caucasian was um, not really a thing for models here yet I know that um, in Australia, we're always slightly behind maybe the rest of the world in terms of like what's, you know, just inclusion. Yeah. <laughs> and when I started and I got signed to like my, my agent of many years, they, um, they were really straightforward with me and they said, look, you're probably never going to make enough money through this job. So you always need to have a backup and you're probably always going to need to, you know, you need to be thinking of all the other things all the time. And I've actually told a lot of kids this now, like a lot of the models that I meet now who are, you know, they're representing all forms, all the fluidity, all the races now. And when, they're aghast when they hear this and they think, oh, that's so offensive. And I think, well, yes. Because also you're not that old, right? So no. it's, it's, not, it's not as if that was such a long time ago. It is. I think it is when you're talking to a 20-year-old 20, 20 or a 17-year-old, it is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in time, they will, they will feel the same way. But um, I think it's interesting because, okay, so for me, I go, yes, it's, it's, it's sad to think that not long ago, just over 10 years ago, that was the climate here. Mm. But it's not sad to think that an agent was doing their job. They should be telling me that. They shouldn't be filling my head up with this idea that I'm going to become a rock star yeah. because that's not necessarily true from their perspective and they're keeping me on the ground and that's, that's valuable. I don't want someone to tell me, tell me things that, is, you know, that may or may not come true. I just want you to give me the brutal honesty. So I really appreciated that advice, even though it, it, didn't, it wasn't true in the yeah. end and that, that's brilliant. <laughs> Certainly not, yeah. But I think as well, I look back on it now and I see so many, so many more mixed race or of every race models having opportunities now and I'm really really happy to see that it's amazing I think in terms of the landscape like that change has been really really impactful um, my biggest fear is that um, I, I'm so happy for that change my biggest fear is always tokenism and I yeah. always worry that that is it's this it's the world right now and that it won't last and I know that's just my fear of speaking so but you've you extended know. way past tokenism like you know in terms of 
It's interesting. Your, your representation, like you, I mean, it, it, it extends beyond that and just comes down to you and your talent, right? Well, I, for me personally, I, I think sometimes I wonder if it was if it was in that regard for me. Or, I, I mean the tokenism more in terms of the climate now and what's happening with inclusion. I really yeah. hope that it, it's, it stands the test of time. Um, and I think it will. I think I think just from having been in the industry for so long, that's just my fear. But you know, I, I don't think it will be how how I'm putting it. You know, it's just because um, you desire. You know, you want the world to change, and you see it changing. So you just hope that it. You know, your hopes continues. Continue. Yeah. But for me personally, no, I do feel very lucky that that wasn't. Maybe in the very beginning, it was a, about my race, and I do feel like it it shifted very much so. And I feel very thankful for that. But it was again very unexpected, I think, from everyone. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, you can't really tell. Yeah. I don't. Excuse me. I don't know. So before, you know, we were talking about some of the processes related to the way the fashion industry works, and they 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 are disconnected from their origin stories, the clothes are disconnected from their origin stories and they're not necessarily um, strong in their relationship to nature. But I'm curious, this is what's kind of driven this season of the podcast, I'm curious because when we think about iconic Australian fashion pieces or brands, we're thinking hardware boots, we're like waxed coats, Mm. um, felt hats, you know, all those pieces swimwear you know that that have a very specific relationship to our landscape and yet there's this disconnect do you think that it's changing i think there's two things happening i think that there are brands that are genuinely pursuing that and pursuing on a deeper understanding and um kind of like returning to the roots of like asking asking good questions and then reforming their structure around that around the answers that they're getting and really trying to make a change. And then there are a lot of brands who I do believe are, um, to use the coined term, greenwashing, you know, people who are actually building their brand philosophy and their whole network and company on sustainable values. They feel uncomfortable um, vocally uh, advocating for it because they feel like it's just become this trend. And they just go, well, I feel like at the end of the day, as long as I'm doing it, that's the important thing. And, and it's true, but it's such a shame because I'm like, the people who are actually doing it are often not, not wanting to talk about it because they just feel like it's getting such a bad rep out there. Yeah. Or it's just so disgraceful what is happening that they just don't want to be associated in that way. It has become such way. a buzzword, hasn't it? It's shocking, like, isn't it? Because yeah. you think, I, and I, I do realize that, you know, it's people wanting to feel better about themselves. So they don't really want to research. They want to be told that it's fine. Yeah. You know, and then they can just keep going on their merry way. And yeah. I mean, you know, it's capitalism again. It just comes back to that. And, you know, but I do feel like, and I always encourage people, you know, who say that to me, who say, oh, I don't feel comfortable sharing that. I go, well, you've got to pepper it in there. You don't have to, you know, just only talk about it, but you should you should have something on your website well, or just they share it, you know. those people that are genuinely seeking that out. Yes. And so they do need to know yes. where the trusted resources are. So many more young people are just genuinely interested in it. Um, I do, I get messages all the time. Um, just on social media and I, I love it. I just think, okay, this is real because you're someone who doesn't necessarily have heaps of disposable income and you might buy a new bag, you know, or save up. You might save up for your purchases yeah. and which is amazing, <laughs> you know, and you're not just making these kind of sporadic splurges when you see something you like. So when you're saving up, you're really thinking about that thing. You know, you might be in uni or you might be, you know, whatever it is, just starting out your job or maybe, maybe not, whatever you're doing, Yeah, this is worth something to you in that way and worth you like, putting aside your budget to, to, to save up for that. And that's so beautiful. And I, and I feel like if that's happening now with people who don't have that disposable income yet, by the time they do, like 
the landscape will shift, you know, and it's growing. It's definitely growing. Do you think it's um, that shift is changing the aesthetic of fashion? Like, because as I said, we have this kind of these iconic symbols that are very connected to our landscape. But you, it, from a from an aesthetic perspective, rather than just a process, mm -hmm. do you think that there's a connection back? I've noticed there's a lot more natural dyeing available. A lot of people really going for that, and right. really inspired by Australian colours of the landscape. You know, wattle. You know, the you know the flowers, all that sort of stuff. There's even um, in terms of wool um, wool dyers. That's that's most of the time when you get a colour card. That's what they all of them are named after Australiana. You know, flora and fauna, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, and so maybe that maybe that does answer some of that as a question. I do feel like you know you look at um, websites like um, you know Rise that are. Uh, curating local designers and what we're what we're doing on a sustainability level and really like kind of focusing on that and and putting that out to the world you know it's an amazing idea and and, and um, train of thought advocacy but um, I do feel like I feel like people talk about it a lot but I don't know aesthetically if I notice it very much I see a lot of jewelers using recycled materials and things like that in there you know whether it's whether it's this the metals or the stones or, or just these other kind of weird found objects. And I think, you know, in a way, going back to like nature and the landscape, the landscape is full of garbage. And, you know, to make something beautiful out of garbage, that's like, that, I mean, that's how you make heaven on earth, isn't it? Like, <laughs> in this earth. Yes. I, I, I know it's not the right slogan to use, but I always come back to this word garbage because it's so brutal and it's so like straight up, oh, like that stinks or oh, that's gross. Like, what is that? And then. You know, I'll say it to someone who's looking at like one one bag in particular that I make is made completely out of waste from a, a factory here, and um, it's all hand hand created from that waste into these bags, and people love these bags. Like the reactions are, I've never thought I'd see this. It was it was made as a styling prop for a shoot, and it turned into like our best selling product. It was wild. Yeah. And every single piece is unique because it's made out of garbage. Yeah. And I love to say that to people when they're admiring it because I'm like. And I often stop myself because I'm also, you know, after years of working in fashion, I understand marketing a little bit better. Yeah. And I know that, like, maybe to some people that's a real throwaway, but... But do you I, think to, for the younger generation that isn't? Like, like that's a, that might be a selling point, you know? I, I do think it's a selling point, not even just for the like younger the generation. ugly, delicious, you know, like... <laughs> it's uh, interesting, though, but that's the thing. Garbage doesn't have to be ugly. It's like, yeah. it's, 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 it's more amazing to surprise people with, oh, my God, you might not have thought this, but it is made out of something that you would have found yeah, in right. the bin. And I think that there's that surprise element, especially when it doesn't appear to be that way. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine, she, she does um, fine jewelry and she's just started working with Lenovo and they're giving her all of uh, all the recycled gold out of the old laptops people throw away. Oh, wow. And yeah. apparently there's just so much of it and it, it just goes to complete waste because people don't realize. And then we're mining for these precious metals out of the earth when they're already taken out and can just be recycled again. It's, it's very, you know. Yeah. So, this story is becoming more and more relevant. Mm. And I think people are realizing that it's not just about me making a stance, me having to like really show my show my colors on my, my blazer, you know, like wear the badge or whatever. It's actually kind of like, I know that I did good here yeah. and nobody has to know about it. Yeah. I don't need to tell anyone I can enjoy this piece purely for me. You know, it's, 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 an, it's a new relationship and I think it's really positive rather than having to like be so outspoken and like, Oh yeah, like this is my this is my choice, and you should make that choice too. Like it's very, it's I think bringing that subtlety into it and just like the conscience. Yeah, that's really important, and I think when people can transform garbage or, or waste in that way, without anyone knowing that it was that, to me that's like the ultimate success. Yeah, in product development.
In terms of subtlety, do you think that your style is subtle? Like how my would personal you style? Yeah. How would you describe your uh, style? I don't know. I think I've got like my uh, my work persona, like we probably all do. Like you know, okay, I've got to pull it together and look nice. And then I've got like my tracksuit personality. <laughs> so um, I don't know. I think I really love color. Um, so apparently that makes you bold, just liking color. But I don't know. I think but when I look at your like your artwork and you you know you, the pieces that you've made, you've kind of shifted from a more fragile, um, you know, softer kind of collection of things to a brighter, bolder yeah. um, triumph, if you like. What, what's that about? Why do you think that's shifted? I, I, to, well, first point of call, I would say it shifted from being artistic to practical. So I started making, went from making visual art to making accessories. Mm. And I, I realized I love making accessories. And, you know, I mean, in swimwear too, which isn't necessarily an accessory, but bags and hats. They're so practical, you know, you use them every day, you go to them. If it's, if it's well-made, if it's, if, it's, if it's comfortable, you will wear that every day. And it's, it, you don't think about it, a good bag or a hat, right? That's what that serves. So it was really with those things and diving into creating a brand, it really became about stripping away excess, which in my visual arts practice wasn't necessarily the case because, you know, we we're using a lot of found objects, a lot of natural like fibers and things like that didn't necessarily, it could, you would work within the parameter of what you found as opposed to trying to change it too much. But with making a utilitarian object, it is really about this person's, someone's gonna carry this, so I need it not to be heavy, and, or, or it needs to be as light as it can, without, with, but it needs to be strong, and it needs to have, do everything but with less. Mm. So color makes that very easy, because you can, there's so much ways that color expresses things without, without frivolity. It's just so direct. People yeah. respond, it's emotional, but it's just a color, you know? Yeah. And I, that's what I really loved, and I think that's where that shift was for me with the practicality and the stripping down and really trying to find the essence of what, what an object was supposed to serve. It allowed me to see color as a real way to then get my personality and humor into it without, um, without bearing too hard on, on the usefulness of something. Yeah. So that, that practicality kind of that you grew up with is just, yeah, just coming back, yeah, straight back. <laughs> and you also have like quite a, you know, that free flowing 70s aesthetic that, you know, um, it, it, with the crochet pieces and the swimwear. Um, do you think that this is hailing back to, to your upbringing? Um, oh, my dad was a proper hippie yeah. <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. And, um, I always, I think when I grew up, I, 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 I definitely idolized that era. It's yeah. interesting as well, like, I don't really talk about it with him, but my stepson has recently started idolizing it too. And it's been interesting talking to him about it because when you're a kid, you know, you just see, you see the aesthetic, you see the kind of the spirit of it. You don't understand all the, you know, the historical context of everything. And so, you know, you try, you try and inform and fill in the gaps a little bit because it's not all glory, right? But, but I think aesthetically, yeah, it's definitely really inspired me throughout my whole life. And, you know, I think it's what brought macrame, crochet, knitwear and those realms really into the pop popular cultural sphere of the last century. Like, mm. um, it's, it's the hippie kind of aesthetic has really been undying in terms of, you know, what's still in vogue now. People still reference it in their, you know, editorials and things like that. So, you know, it's one of those things that's really stood the test of time. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it, it allows for crochet, macrame, knitwear to be relevant in that way. And I think. Yeah, to say that it's not, it's definitely a part of me, for sure. <laughs> and this might be a stretch, but would you say, um, you know, in terms of your passion for knitting and weaving, that that 
interwoven uh, process is kind of a symbol of you interweaving different identities into one yeah. one form for you. I know it's it's always the metaphor for everything, isn't yeah. it? I yeah. feel I do I do feel and it is it's a, such a beautiful thing looking at it on such a basic level. It's this infinite string and. It, you can create so many equations with it mathematically, um, you know, sculpturally, all of that. But at the end of the day, it's one string, and if you want, you can undo it again and start over. And I think that that idea that you know, if if you make a mistake, you can you can go back yeah. and start again. It's not the end, and it, it doesn't need to be. And it's beautiful that whole process. You know, I, I think that's something to be said for life. Like you just get back up and you keep going. And you know, I've been lucky enough to be able to do that myself. So yeah, I definitely so think it's a metaphor. Who you are, though, doesn't it? Like oh. going back to that tenacity that we were talking about at the beginning. Um, but if we were to knit another jumper for you, you know, like what in terms of the repurposing, if we were to pull it all apart and make something new for your future, what 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 does that look like for you? Like, what would you like to see? Uh, your next path be? Um, well, I'm really loving having a business that um, aligns my values, but also my creativity. It's been, it, starting it has been the best decision I ever made for myself. And I, I didn't even know it when I made that decision. And I'm just learning that every day, realizing that I'm growing so much as a person and really realizing the value of all the wonderful connections I've made over the years through my industry, uh, through my family, my friends. Like, it's just this wonderful conversation that continues to show me new aspects that I did not expect. And that I'm so thankful for that as a whole. And I'm really thankful at the moment as well, um, as I was saying to you earlier about being able to impart skills onto um, the children that I teach. It's, it's, it's been, I think that the bottom line of that was realizing that my, my childhood was a gift in that way and that you know if I can give a little bit of that to somebody else like that's that's wonderful because you only need a little bit you need someone to show you that it's possible and if that clicks with you eventually in your life whatever happens to you if the opportunity comes up again it will probably it, it will reconnect with with this string and you might take it further and that's all you need you just need to seed that little idea and it will grow and I feel really really honored and privileged to be able to have that now working with children and and just just getting to share that and to create. I mean, working with kids is it's really different because they they have a lot of fears in certain ways, but they have none of the fears that adults have. So you kind of get this open book of like, you know, where can this take you? Um, and you don't use so many words. You know, you use your hands more than anything. So it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. I'm very thankful. Um, and it it is because you I think when you're around children and you see them learning, you you do feel like you're contributing to something greater than yourself yes. or your, your particular goals, you know, and you're watching them feed through that process yes. and it's, it is, it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they, going back to one of our earlier parts of the conversation, um, you obviously grew up learning all these techniques and as you're saying, it's only the recent history that has dictated that we don't have these skills growing up, that we're losing these skills, but obviously you're making sure that doesn't happen. But if for um, the people listening who don't, like there's so many people I know that don't even know how to sew a button onto onto their clothing, like what, are there any tips that you could kind of impart um, in terms of, you know, some basic skills that would help in, in that repair process? Uh, it's interesting, like I, I don't even, it's, it, I'd just say YouTube. I mean, there's so, there's so much already on there. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Like, 
for anything almost, you know, fixing a shower head. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a real fixer. I'm the fixer in my family. Um, yeah. My partner has ceded to that. It's pretty <laughs> funny. But I feel like I'm, I mean, I can't really stand YouTube personally, but um, it's out there. There's so much out there. But the reality is you just, I mean, it's mending something really never costs very much money. You can go and get a needle and a thread for $2 at Spotlight and you can fix almost anything yeah. with that, you know? So all you have to do is start it's really like about trying more than anything. Like even if someone was sitting with you and teaching you, you know, sitting at a table together, you might not have as much luck as you do just watching a video or just getting it and trying out on your own. Like it's the beauty of it. It's just starting. It's like anything, right? Like you have a vision, you want to, you want to learn how to play the drums, just go, just go. Yeah. Or, or just get that drum and start beating on it. You know, I just, I do think that I, I mean, I notice this about myself all the time as I'm getting older. I'm, I have, oh, I don't have time to do that, or I don't have, you know, I want to explore that, but I don't have time, or I'm scared. I'm scared of what people are going to think about me if I go to that class, and everyone's going to be better than me, or, you know, I mean, it's, it's like being a child again. You realize that some of those fears, they really don't go anywhere. You, mm -hmm. still, you still have them in you, but how many times in our lives have we proven to ourselves and to others, or had others prove to us that nobody, nobody actually cares, and it's just about <laughs> turning up? Yeah. So with mending or anything like that, I would just say show up for yourself. Show up, show up for you know your own understanding. Yeah. Just embrace that you don't know it, and that's like a beautiful thing because there's so many things in the world that none of us know. And like if you get that opportunity to explore it, and mending is such a daily thing. You can do it so easily. It takes a few minutes. And you might, you might, maybe you'll never do it again. Maybe you'll do that one button and hate it. But you did that one button, and now you appreciate. And someone else does that button for you. Yeah. You know, and that's the beauty of it. Yeah. I think. So my last question, Rachel, um, and it's how I always finish my interviews. When you're in the future, when you're older, what do you hope to see yourself wearing? Wearing? Yeah. <laughs> um, probably a lot of the clothes that I have now, I would hope. Yeah. Um, my mum's got some amazing like chong sums and things from my grandma that I'm really hoping to wear. <laughs> um, you know, just those kind of heirloom pieces, I guess. I'd love to own more Jenny Key, you know, she's oh, always the best. Yeah, if you can find it, good yes. luck. <laughs> oh, my neighbor, my neighbor, she's like taking care of her grandbaby the other day and comes out with like a fabulous Jenny Key and I was like, she's like, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know. Right, well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me on this iconic land and this beautiful spot. Um, and thank you for sharing your style story with me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Like an infinite string of wool, Rachel's strength lies in tenacity, practicality and resilience, while her beauty sits in her ethereal ease and gentle, soft form. As her story unfurls, we see her weave through life's changes and challenges. And as she interlaces meaning into her learnings, she emerges as an artful, adaptable, ever-evolving force, always hailing back to the harmony of nature. Her artisan practice of knitting may have offered her a sense of self that values the art of care and repair, but it is Rachel's special way to make treasure out of trash that accents her style. And it's her intellect and inspiration of imperfections that are the most interesting and beautiful part of her story.